Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist podcast at the America Centrum in Hamburg. This is our first politics podcast of 2022, and it's coming much earlier than we expected. We had planned to do a podcast on the upcoming French elections, which seem rather insignificant now when we read about the news coming from the Ukraine. So today we're going to focus on Ukraine, Russia, and the future of Europe. With me today to give his expert insight, as always, is our EU expert, Gunter Donner. Dr. Donner is a graduate of Oxford. He did his PhD in economics and economic history at the University of California, Berkeley. And he spent nearly 30 years in Brussels representing the German statutory health system. And he's an expert in all things related to the complex process and administration of EU social security, social services, etc., which I think I can describe as a multi-trillion dollar sector of Europe. So, Dr. Donner, it's great to have you again. Sorry it's under sad circumstances. Hello. Gunter, let's start with the humanitarian catastrophe, which I think is the most important point before we get into some of the other issues. Today, we're recording this on the 8th of March, and there have been 1.7 million refugees streaming out of Ukraine already. 1.7 million, which is a heck of a lot when you think that it took several months for about 1.2 million Syrian refugees to leave Syria in about a week and a half, uh, that number was reached in Ukraine. The most recent estimate I read from the UN was that they expect 5 million refugees in the next couple of weeks. So my question for you is, uh, can the EU support such a large number of refugees, is it robust enough? Well, quite a lot of what we've seen in the past on certain topics, exactly topics we are discussing right now, uh, has changed within, I should rather say, days than weeks or hours even. One is a, an apparent, and it's clearly, it's clearly evident, a readiness to accommodate the victims, the most vulnerable victims of the horrors going on in Ukraine by the EU in, in, in its entirety and even by countries which before uh, had shown uh, more than a more than a tolerable degree of reluctance to contribute to humanitarian efforts to help the misery uh, of innocent people displaced from their home countries, deprived of their basic human rights by military aggression. This is uh, not the solution in itself, but it clearly shows a change in mentality. This is the first thing. The other is many of the EU countries primarily involved now might have imagined or can still imagine a similar fate to themselves had they not become NATO member states. And here you're talking about Poland, the Baltics. Let's face it, the EU has achieved, or experienced, I should rather say, has experienced an about-face change in certain crucial issues, receiving common, common ground and consensus in such a delicate matter as the accommodation of refugees within hours and days is remarkable. Let's face it, there is less cultural unreadiness, less, less cultural aversion towards the people fleeing from Ukraine than there was years ago when the unhappy refugees came from the Near East and further beyond. 
it shouldn't be forgotten and and one shouldn't one shouldn't get the idea that now all all refugees from wherever will be accommodated ukraine is seen as a, the epitome of an innocent victim of a ruthless political aggression and i think this is understood and of course the eu is united they can act quickly and they have funds galore to support these countries with the eu countries that will is quite easy materially speaking it will be a huge huge challenge in the future because the five million can easily double guerrilla warfare for, for, for years i mean it's it's beyond uh, beyond comprehension now what that would total to in terms of human cost as long as all of the eu member states manage to keep this new sense of unity then the eu being a huge economic block has the resources to handle this at least for the near and medium term and we'll see what happens in the long term i, I want to move to another point here which is basically how we got here and i'm talking about how this war started and it touches upon what you mentioned briefly about the uh, sort of unity and the general about face that all of europe did uh, Germany was a big part of this, as it were, overnight turning their backs on what their previous Russia policy was, which was peace through economic exchange, economic networks, trade. But that was also shared by a number of other EU countries. It's always better to talk to Russia and trade with Russia because international trade and these deep economic ties are natural guardrails against war that was the prevailing view perhaps for about 30 years since the fall of the soviet union and there was conflict within the west a variety of american presidents criticized the closeness of of germany and some eu countries to russia and indeed, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which has gotten a lot of press, uh, of course, recently. I remember doing talks on Nord Stream 2 back during the Obama administration. So, so the, certainly the United States has been warning Germany specifically about its reliance on trade with Russia. And also was very direct saying, well, you Germans might think that trade is a guardrail that ensures peace, but Russia does not. And I think that argument has now been proven to be correct. It's certainly more complex than that, but what do you think, Gunter? Let me put one thing first. The, the history of détente, or an, a negative, with a negative connotation, appeasement, uh, but détente was a hallmark of uh, socio-democratic foreign policy in Germany. At in, uh, it started in the early 70s, the early 70s, so it's way back in history. Uh, it was an alternative to the uh, conventional view of massive response and completely isolated blocks cut into by the Iron Curtain, which was, of course, not of the West's making. Uh, so detente in, in basically has brought us forward, I should say. It has also uh, helped to bring the Soviet Union, uh, what your then president Ronald Reagan called the empire of evil, to bring it down because it opened this realm to minuscule elements of our daily life. It was then continued because it seemed to be so, so promising. It was continued, it was uh, laden with more and more expectations, which now, with hindsight, of course, everybody is clever, with hindsight, have led clearly, and I have to admit this, have led to a massive disillusionment. And this disillusionment is exactly the key triggering factor that helped a, I shouldn't call them left-wing, but a left-wing, green, liberal, whatever, mixed new government in Germany that started with completely different ideological goals, namely climate change and whatever, and social welfare and more justice to whatever. And now they are trapped 
and probably the, what is the biggest crisis of foreign policy and security since World War II, or probably since the, the, the um, building of the Berlin Wall. This is remarkable, this is deplorable, and of course, during all these decades, the um, peaceful coexistence, that was the Soviet term, between the two different systems was maintained with a rather, then still rather limited exchange of trade. Trade as such is, is okay as long as you do not start becoming dependent, dependent on it. If you depend on your former adversary, you may find yourself in difficulties. And if you now look at more than 50% of gas imports to Germany come from Russia, we are right there. This is the problem. And the Russian, the Russian strategy probably miscalculated a number of things. If we go back in, in, in recent history, so in Putin's history, because don't forget, it's this man. Another man might not have do it. One might not have done it, or might not do what he's up to in the future. We don't know. His will now there is omnipotent, which is always dangerous. We have that in German history. Others, other countries know what a dictator could, could do to, to both his and other nations. But now we have this man, and when he started, when he started in 99 as a prime minister still, now he started with a war, the second war in Chechnya. The first one was a clear defeat for the Russians, a humiliation, and he started the second, very, very brutal and cruel, the same military doctrine, and it came to an end after many years with enormous amounts of casualties and devastation. But then he was still weak. He was extremely weak. So was his country. So the idea then that he would lean towards the West for being strengthened, the strength of the, of the Russians then became their reserves of foreign currency. So the, the trade exchange between the Russian realm and the West, including Germany, have multiplied during this period because our consumption of crude material has reached enormous levels that you couldn't compare to the rather modest trade exchange levels we had during the 80s or during the 70s. And this, this has, of course, led to Putin, together with a complete change in Western political strategy, namely peace we take for granted. There is no Cold War anymore. There is no rivalry. There is no danger. And, and that explains all these subsequent errors, negligence of our defense. That was for everybody to see, because the majority of people, what, who, sh who shall we fight against? There is no threat anymore. They are our friends. They are our partners. And this change hasn't affected in no way the interior behavior of the Russian or the Putin system, which was a clear dictatorship, a very Soviet-like in style. And if you, if you watch their propaganda, you, it's modern technology now, but the verbal phrases are almost like the miracles communism was about to perform. And, of course, they crack down on any political movement, individual or, or group or whatever, within the sphere of influence, which could be interpreted as a critic. I see Putin as a hybrid Stalinist. Hybrid in as much as Stalin had no understanding for foreign imports, for trade exchange, nothing. Putin has or had, I don't know what he does now, but, of course, his, his, his power was built on this. And there were indications, we go back in time, not to the flattening of Grozny, we, have, we could do it later, with what happened in Syria, what happened to many uh, opponents uh, abroad. All these were cl clear indications that there is no understanding and no, for the rule of law, for democracy, nothing in Russia, nothing. And it, it became worse and worse. And uh, so in the end, we were taking, we were just closing our eyes towards the mount, ever-mounting threats. I personally would not have expected him to start an all-out war uh, because it's abysmally stupid. Uh, he, he won't win much, or probably nothing. 
We'll assess that a little bit later. I, I want to stick with the Putin analysis right now, because there's been a lot of talk, which I think is unhelpful, that says, oh, Putin is off his marbles. The last two years, he's isolated himself too much, and he no longer is getting good information. He's a little bit mad. I mean, even if that's the case, if he is a madman, you still have to deal with him in real power terms then, mad or not. And by real power terms, of course, I'm talking about the hard power of military might. So I, I've been I've been assessing whether or not we actually should just take the complete opposite view from what lots of these analysts are saying. Why don't we just look at the situation by saying that, in fact, in certain respects, Vladimir Putin is very transparent and indeed honest. And suddenly you start analyzing everything a little bit differently. If you take his perspective as being honest for him and transparent, he's been saying for quite a long time that he demands a buffer zone between Russia and NATO. There are dozens and dozens and thousands of statements saying that. And further, he's been saying, if you will not give that to me, I will take it by force, which is exactly what is happening. So in a certain respect, I think it's important just to consider the transparency approach or analysis that I'm suggesting, which then leads to what we're seeing now, and it gives us some idea of how we want to respond. Now, obviously, his perspective could be morally wrong. Indeed, we might disagree that NATO is an offensive uh, alliance bent at the destruction of Russia. Of course, NATO says, no, we're just defensive, and that's kind of being proven now with the resistance of NATO countries to enforce a no-fly zone. So, the point is these two different perspectives. Russia's perspective, I demand a buffer zone, you are an aggressive alliance, and NATO's perspective, no, we're not. Well, how do you resolve such conflicts, some di such diametrically opposed positions, not in the world of values and morality and dreams, but in the world we live in? Those are resolved through power. And that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. And just, and just one more point on this. As much as I respect personally Ukraine's insistence that they are an independent country and they should be allowed to join the EU or choose their own sovereign course in the community of nations, Putin's insistence that they are not a country and never have been is, again, a conflict of perspectives. Ukraine insists we are independent. Putin is, is essentially saying in this war prove it. If you think you're independent, then defeat us in battle, which is a horrible you know, way of resolving disputes. But essentially, that's what it comes down to. So again, I would just suggest that much of what Putin does is not madman-like. It's very much power-based. It's realpolitik. And of course, the victims of realpolitik are always 19-year-old young boys sent to fight and die, uh, women, children, and old people. So that tragedy will remain. Well, uh, I'm, I'm quite with you there. To put it very shortly, I do not think Putin is mad. I mean, no. And, uh, well, I wouldn't call him honest, though. No, I would rather call him he's straightforward. If you put him in a context of Russian tyrants or leaders, call it as you will, I use the old fashioned word terrorists because they are, they, there was not, not one Russian leader, probably with, that, with the exception of Kerensky for a couple of months, that had ever any democratic basis. They had SARS, they had communist dictators, and that was, that was it. So there is no democratic experience of worthwhile, worthwhile this, this term. And um, I, I called Putin during his reign, which now is rather long, it's more than almost 25 years, if you put him in a series of Russian leaders from Tsars to Stalin, the most successful, hitherto the most successful tyrant ever, success to them is measured by the enlargement of their country in terms of, of, of terrain. 
how this terrain, after the, having been added to their empire, looks like, uh, never was never of any interest. NATO, clear, to us, NATO clearly is no aggressive alliance. How, how could NATO... Uh, uh, <laughs> don't forget the French... It was the French president about uh, 10 months ago called it brain dead. He may have changed his opinion, I bet. But NATO was really without much public support. And this, if I may say so, I would have seen in Europe, clearly, where it was considered to be its leftover from the Cold War, which no longer uh, could be considered a menace. And in America, during the unhappy Trump years, by the way, to me, Trump was Putin's biggest asset ever, crippled the transatlantic relations between Europe and, and the US. And even in the aftermath of Trump's downfall, America, to me, by comparison to, to decades ago, even under conservative rule, which is no fault in itself, to me, gives the idea of being split into various fractions. So Putin had a very good point to start with. His coffers were full of foreign currency, and he had neutralized or silenced all his interior opponents. And now he sees himself, he's, he's closing and becoming 70, he sees himself in the light in the, in, the, in, the, in the line of Russian leaders. What has he accomplished? And there is a thing one may have to, to discuss, and this is NATO has never been an aggressive alliance, but it was a successful alliance. And success to those administrating the opposite is an object that may make them uh, unpredictable. Russia, after the downfall of the Soviet empire, think for a minute, could, could have Ronald Reagan imagined such a downfall of the Soviet empire as occurred when the, the drug addict and drunkard Yeltsin ruled the country together with thousand mafia clans. The country was to smithereens in, in, in 1997. Absolutely. People were going hungry. You couldn't buy anything for the ruble. Then Putin came and he restored it with the old Russian tradition, strong hand and the knout. And he was applauded for this. In the end, he erected a mafiotic system. I think it was an English, British, uh, English court, wasn't it, Old Bailey? They, uh, where a judge declared Russia to be a, a, mafiot, a, maf, a mafia state, which to me is quite understandable because there is a huge cleavage between the average rank and file Russian living a rather modest, uh, to call it mildly, existence, and the upper, the upper echelon living in an abundance as, during my boyhood, we would have called the queen of the upper Nile. Good. And I think I'm going to uh, jump in here because this is a wonderful way to segue into another point I wanted to discuss, which was sanctions. Mm -hmm. And the sanctions are multifaceted. They are, one, targeting the mafioso, the mafiosi, rather, the so-called billionaire oligarchs who presumably are all part of the uh, network that supports Putin's leadership. Another aspect of the sanctions, of course, was sanctioning these banks and freezing foreign reserve assets. A third item there was cutting them off from international banking transfers using the SWIFT system. Another now discussed plan is to stop the import of oil and gas, which is considered to be even the next nuclear option after the previous nuclear option, which was the cutting Russian banks off of the SWIFT system. So again, I've been trying to look at things from an alternative perspective than what is commonly being reported and discussed. And I immediately thought, well, how quickly could all of these sanctions and acid freezes be reversed? So is it possible that Putin is thinking, I can ride out these sanctions for six months, a year, who knows? He probably has calculated this already because I know, and I'm going to make sure all of my rich friends know that we can recover quickly as soon as this is resolved. If that's the case, then the sanctions regime is not doing what it's intended to. 
because there will be, as part of any negotiated settlement, a removal of these sanctions. How effective are they going to be? How effective are they right now, Gunter? Well, sanctions, of course, are a medium-term to long-term system of exacting force without, without a bloodshed. They will not be able to save a besieged Ukrainian village or city. They will not be able to immediately stop the Russian army from the, the aerial onslaught. But what they do is they seal, and to my reading, by the, by the day or by the week, but rather by the day, they seal Russia off from the hybrid version of Stalinism which is only possible, and this goes to show the weakness of the whole affair in Russia. They are our arch foe, but our arch foe needs our flourishing, stable currencies, because his ruble isn't worth a penny. You could use them by the pack to light your fireplace. Without access to hard currency, dollars, pounds, and the like, euros, his empire is back to where they were when Ronald Reagan, it's the third time I refer to him, when he called them the empire of evil and he made fun of them and the ridiculous ways the communism was put into place there, whatever, uh, as an alternative to, to our market society. But their long-term or medium-term effect is devastating. Uh, let me add one thing. I mean, we are still not uh, having sanctions full throttle. As you mentioned, the oil imports, even the American oil imports, this is a story that has to be mentioned because few people in Europe know it. The, the disaster of German energy policy making uh, is probably a different story. It's 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 a thing to, totally out of out out of contact with reality uh, for years, and and wishful thinking pipe dreams were sold at high prices. All this will come to an end rather quickly. You will stop importing oil for you. For you Americans, this is easy. Britain can do it. I mean, they probably don't import anything. For Germany and Italy, uh, it's difficult. France can because they get it all from, from, from Northern Africa. So what I see is that this will come. I, I, I expect a further sealing off uh, of the Western countries from the Russian energy exports during a period of whatever, four to six weeks, uh, which is probably a bit, a bit yeah, well, inspired by, by hope rather, because that seals his economic fate. It doesn't make any sense to block his bank account, where at the same time we transfer a, billions, a billion per day for the purchase of, of, of crude material. Uh, this is contradictory, if not hypocrisy in itself. But the question is, how will the German government counterbalance it? How will they deal with the, with, with the gap if they see it all? The day Putin cannot sell his, his crude material anymore, his economy is not only crippled, but it's finished. There, there will be uh, situations like in the, within month, uh, like under the, the communist rule in the early 60s, endless queues for, uh, in front of their, their ships, shops, all the the glitzy malls closed down because you wouldn't buy a, a Soviet product. And the, their own products of their own making are still Soviet quality and Soviet style. And nothing has changed. No investor in his right mind would have started a factory there. I mean, those who did paid the price for it. I bank on these restrictions and I, I hope, and this is the miscalc another miscalculation of Putin's. What he deals with is I can switch. I do the, the I give the bad the, the note the, the stick and uh, I offer a carrot, and then everything goes back to where it was before. This will not happen. Putin, gr grossly and due to his upbringing and his, his his development of his mind, of his political experience, there is one factor he never calculated with, and this is public disdain, which doesn't play and has never played a role in Russia, uh, but this is now here. And it won't disappear quickly because nobody will forget what he does. And every day the Ukrainians keep resistance up. Even every victim this poor nation uh, offers or gives further will 
further stabilize the sentiment that Putin as a, as a leader, as a contracting partner, contracting party, will never be trusted again. I had suggested that one calculation Putin made is that he could weather the sanctions storm for a certain amount of time and then reset things back to normal. What you and many other analysts are saying, that this is actually a, a whole paradigm shift, that there will be no going back to the previous 30 years of detente or peace through trade and economic ties. Everyone And indeed, we've been seeing lots of Western business announcing that they're just going to stop uh, investing and conducting business in Russia. I think that's very likely, but but we'll see. The uh, the greed of the West <laughs> can't can also not be underestimated. If there is money to be made in Russia, there will be people in the West who do so, even if they're frowned upon by political yes, political leaders. Here, I think we have reached a stage where certain trade relations might even be banned politically. You'd be the first country to do it because that rather quickly happens in America. But I would I would see this here as well. And politicians may be under an enormous moral pressure not to fall back to positions Putin uh, has shown he never meant in earnest. The thing is now, how will, how will this all end? Where will it lead to? And that, of course, has a an enormous consequence or is of enormous consequence for what we expect our sanctions to be like. Will there be a final deal? I don't think so, really. What exactly happens is, of course, just at, at the time being, now sheer speculation. If you look how, how isolated Russia has become, how disinformed the Russia, those Russians are who just rely on state television, telling them the exact opposite of what is going on in the world. I mean, Germany had it during the years of Nazism when listening to, to a British radio would have cost you your head, that you would have been uh, executed. In the end, it didn't help. Dictators have weaknesses, but the, the do know more of the, the double and triple miscalculations. There was a strategic and tactical miscalculation the whole thing should have gone on like on rails in a blitzkrieg fashion, which clearly is not the case. And I'm, I'm going to stop you there again because we've mentioned potential strategic miscalculations. I'm still going to talk about them being potentialities until you know maybe six months from now when a better assessment can be made. We already mentioned the first is that perhaps um, Putin miscalculated the sanctions regime and the unity of the West in that respect. The second thing he miscalculated was the Ukrainian resistance, the hard military resistance, which you just mentioned. And the third thing maybe he miscalculated is the moral interest and the moral outrage of the rest of the world. Those are three miscalculations. Let's hit on the second one, though, uh, the Ukrainian resistance. Obviously, uh, there's been... I mean, it, it's difficult to, to see ourselves. We're far away. We're getting news reports from a variety of sources, but it seems to be generally understood by generals in the West that as of now, the, the plan to invade Ukraine was mismanaged horribly due to either the incompetence of the Russian generals and officers and military, or the excellence of the Ukrainians, or a little bit of both, who knows. If Putin was expecting a four-day war, uh, that's not what he's getting. Certainly not. Well, in the past, if you look at the war he waged on Georgia, that was a, that was a blitzkrieg type, a comparable nature. The aim hasn't been reached completely because your president threatened him more or less in disguise, and he stopped short of destroying Georgia and depriving Georgia of, of her independence. Which, by the way, I mean, depriving an, a sovereign nation and Ukraine, in spite of Ukraine's rather difficult history, Ukraine rarely, rarely ever was an independent country in history, 
rather the object of then important military powers had been divided up, cut up many times. But it was accepted when the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic left the the umbrella organization USSR, their neutrality, their, their statehood was granted. And they gave back all the nuclear arms that, that were stationed there. So there can be no question that Ukraine today is a sovereign state. And now we have um, a big power referring to whatever history, referring to, 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 to blatant lies and, and idiotic explanations, uh, denazification of, of, of Ukraine today is ridiculous. It has. I want to. I want to jump in right here because the a, a narrative must be given to justify such a a war, be it totally false or not. And one of these narratives that Putin is spinning is the denazification of Ukraine. Well, he's a fascist himself. But 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 hold on. I mean, all wars have need justifications. The second one that actually the Biden administration is warning people to be prepared for. They've done a great job throughout around the last couple of weeks warning us about the fake news that was about to come out of Russia. And the new one is that uh, Russian troops are going to find biological and nuclear weapons labs so that they're claiming that Ukraine was developing WMDs, which would provide a justification for all of this suffering and death and destruction. And and just to be fair, I do want to point out that the U.S. is not innocent of such claims to justify wars. Nor no, no is Britain. Nor is Britain. So I'm, but the point is that these he can't very well, Putin now I'm talking about, can't very well not have such justifications. They do still function in, in creating a, a justification for an invasion. So even, even a, a dictator needs a narrative. Yes. But if you look at the one and the, the they come up with, it so much reminds me of, of idiotic Soviet propaganda from the days of my youth. So let's face it, it turned about, what could the Russians have done in order to reinstall uh, a puppet regime uh, in Kiev, even sovereign or not sovereign, then has no, has no function, has no meaning. Uh, had they been more creative in their mind, which evidently they aren't. Just look at Ukraine. We, 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 we've been talking about Ukraine and Europe day in, day out since 2005 or so. It's a very, very little results. The, the, the idea in Brussels was it's impossible to take them into the Union because A, we can't pay for it, B, the system is quite corrupt, which it wasn't then. But now look at this president, uh, Zelensky now. Uh, he's an outstanding character. And that is the first character, not even his, his predecessor, who was democratically elected, Parachenko, but he was an, an oligarch himself. So uh, it's this person. And this person stands for some, something Putin abominates, that is the will of the people. He could have easily cooperated with the West. Ukraine was economically enorm- enormously weaker, even much weaker than Russia then. And he could have offered Ukrainians a better life with closer relations to Russia access to the Russian uh, labor market, he could have won over the hearts and minds instead of forcing them to do whatever at gunpoint, or even killing them as he does right now. All this was out of his imagination. So what he wanted is to have Ukraine as a buffer state between his empire and NATO. And again, I come back to my remark dealing with the historic success of NATO after the downfall of the Soviet Union. This success, uh, it was a thorn in the flesh. And now Putin sees himself in the, in the line of historic leaders turning back history. Well, he's getting older, and, and now he wants to, to accomplish it. But he has no, he's not creative enough to, does, to do it, to perform this duty in a, in a more successful manner. So he, he falls back to the old strategy of, if you don't do what I tell you, I kill you. An uncreative madman is definitely less dangerous than a creative madman. Right. He's the epitome of a Russian tyrant. Take Ivan the Terrible, take Peter the Great or Stalin. Uh, and he's in with this. 
to him, these ideas of winning over hearts and minds with the chicken and the pot and the car and the garage, as an American president, president once proposed, just though he had the funds for this, just was, was never carried out. And now we see the, the buffer mentality. And I'm, I'm really uh, very interested how this is going to be solved. Right. And, and that's, that's, something, that's something we need to turn to now, Gunter. We don't, we don't like predicting things. Indeed, your last prediction was that Nord Stream would be live by the end of this mm -hmm. year on our last show. Had Putin behaved differently, it would have gone. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And it would have earned him further billions by the drove. But all this, he, he threw away for the idea of, I need it now, I don't get it any by any other means, so I let my, I unleash my military power. And even this was done in a rather uh, abysmally mediocre quality. There is no tactical and strategic planning discernible. Uh, and in the end, it's all brutality and flattening and killing. A massacre. Okay, so the point that I want to discuss now are the potential ends to this conflict. And there are a number of potential ways this conflict could end. And I don't know how, how realistic any of them is, but, but there is a fact that all wars do end, and they usually end with some sort of political settlement. So, of course, one, one end of this conflict is the annihilation of Ukraine, mm -hmm. the installation then of a puppet government in Kiev or Kiev. And potentially there might be a long-term insurgency then of Ukrainian nationalists, which would basically lead to sort of uh, a long-term uh, frozen conflict in there, but it would be taking place in Ukraine rather than in Russia. So in a certain sense, that's uh, a win for Putin. Obviously, he gets his, his buffer zone, even though it might cost Russian troops. Another option, of course, would be the military defeat of Russia. I'm not entirely sure, despite the excellent performance of the Ukrainian military to date, that they can actually mount an offensive to drive the Russian military out of their lands. Defending is one thing. Driving a military out of your lands is a completely other option. So that's, that's uh, another potential outcome here. A third outcome would then just be a declaration of some sort of a ceasefire and an adopting some sort of new line of control. So what we would have here is a shrunken and divided Ukraine. Who knows where these lines would be drawn? And uh, in the West, you'd have something like a very much disabled Western-leaning part of Ukraine, and all of the East would be, again, a Russian puppet state. There's an even another option here, of course, is the complete annihilation of Ukraine and then further conflict, as you noted it perhaps in Moldova and God forbid in the Baltics. So uh, can you just assess some of those which you think are more likely or less likely? Well, historically speaking, Ukraine has many times been cut up between rivaling powers, the, the most famous partition of Ukraine occurred in the mid-1659 or so, between then the more leaning towards the Russian sector, the Tatars were still there in power as a factor then, but they, they don't play any role anymore, and the Polish-Lithuanian Empire. So this has history in its favour, though I cannot really understand how this is, how this will be brought about within the Ukrainian population that still seems to be decided to fight. So unless devastation brings about a change of public opinion, better stop it at whatever price than continue. I doubt that this is very realistic in the, sh in the short run. A Ukrainian victory, I would rule out, without an air force worthwhile its name, Without a superiority or sovereignty, uh, you have no chance. Uh, had they an air force, the Russians' troops wouldn't be there anymore. I mean, the way they maneuver uh, is ridiculous. I mean, I'm not a military, I've never been a soldier myself, but I know quite a bit of military history. 
The way they manoeuvre is ridiculous. It's old-fashioned. It's almost uh, First World War with a bit more added mobility. So the, 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 the victory of Ukraine could consist in a war of attrition and even flattening cities if you do it against a, a defender armed with small arms, small but effective arms, which the Ukrainians probably will be, and are already, it's easier to defend a heap of rubble than an intact building. Russian tanks are of no value in such a situation. They are just sitting dogs. So what they can do is they can flatten bomb and whatever. That will further discredit them in the international public opinion because civilian casualties will mount uh, to alarming now to breathtaking proportions. It may, may not break the Ukrainian will to, re, to, to resist. I have no idea. The creation of a somewhat reduced Ukraine, which then, well, would be independent, would there remain the present government with the uh, conviction that we are still, we are in a small country, in a reduced country now, but we have the right because legitimacy is on our side for the entirety of Ukraine then you just postpone the, the conflict and it will restart one day. Uh, so it's very difficult to, to, to give a positive approach there. Another is that uh, it drags on for weeks with horrible casualties and no tangible Russian successes. And that might make it difficult for Putin to explain to his oligarchs and the pillars of his empire I'm at a loss what to say, how strong are they real factors or are they just puppets to, to hide his personal wealth? I have no idea. I mean, some of them disappeared, others were poisoned. Uh, some of them disappeared in, 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 in gulag prisons. Uh, others fled to foreign countries. Many of them still go hither and thither between the West and Russia. It's all very difficult. I, I don't believe in an attack on a NATO country. I mean... Let's face it, my, my, I may be wrong, but I don't think so, because Putin knows what happens. An attack on Latvia, an attack on Poland is nuclear war, and there is no Moscow anymore left. And he will be the first to kick the bucket, to put it bluntly. So such people don't want to die, not in that fashion. He knows that. And I think it should be when he imposed a, a further stage of fighting readiness for his deterrence forces, he knows pretty well that NATO even if not discussing it, does the same. Of course, all this is monitored. This is the way it worked during the, the Cold War. And uh, the idea that Russians, due to their military doctrine, might have on the battlefield to be the first to employ tactical nuclear weapons in the past led to the NATO conception of massive response, which later was abandoned. But the Russians, due to their conventional weakness, and we see evidence of this every day in the news, might have been the first to employ tactical nuclear weapons, but nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. So where this would end to, I think Putin knows very well. The thing is, what happens with the remaining free states, uh, republics, Georgia and Moldova, to name but the most, uh, the, the closest here. And this is an open question. Had he been more successful in Ukraine, had the idea of a blitzkrieg puppet regime, a revolt in Ukraine inspired through bribes or at gunpoint, whatever, uh, had this worked, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have uh, uh, given much for the sovereignty of Moldova nor Georgia. But the longer it takes for him to, even with unlimited resources, he's ready to use to conquer this resolute country, Ukraine the more difficult it will become for him a walk over to, re to, 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 to reverse history. So I think he's, he's uh, in difficulty. What I expect in the end is that the Chinese, probably the only power to have an influence on him, will for maybe for entrepreneurial reasons, for business reasons, um, motivate him to come to a certain settlement. I have no idea how this is going to look like because China is a difficult country in herself. But if any leverage could be exercised on Putin, it would come from Beijing, clearly not from, from Brussels. It's about time, time to wrap up, so I'll just give some final thoughts. The great tragedy of war 
is sort of summed up by some of the things that you have just discussed. And it's that even if you're trying to do the right things, there is so much suffering. And the Ukrainians and Zelensky are faced with the horrible thought of knowing that actually their battlefield successes that prolong the war and, as it were, increase their chances of having a settlement in Ukraine's favor. Every day they resist means that more of their own people have to die and more of their cities will be destroyed. And that's just such a, a terrible position. There is no way out of it. Uh, you can you can surrender and end the suffering, a certain type of suffering. You exchange it for another type of suffering of not being a free, sovereign people. Or you keep fighting knowing that every success is also actually something of a humanitarian tragedy. Any final points, Gunter? Well, I think one should admire the Ukrainian nation for their... For their stamina for their conviction and for their for the passion they understand they grasp and cling to the idea of democracy and freedom and not to give in to murky uh, compromising i think the ukrainian nation has taught us a lesson and they've made us change and give up irresponsible principles of polit of our political past our is European. The Americans had other problems. They have changed us to an enormous degree. They have shown us that freedom, the rule of law, are not negotiable, and you cannot negotiate them for pipe dreams and a quick box. So they are a value in themselves, and they constitute the idea that Freedom, once given away, won't spare you from having to live in a ruin. Freedom and the right to live in a, in a rule of law and not a tyranny are so important, far more important than many a subject made important by whatever political fraction today. They are basic core values, because what is an existence under tyranny? Despotism is a horror. And... Despotism on a, on, a, on, a, on a destroyed in a destroyed country is probably even worse. So what I think is the Ukrainians merit our support, our emotional support, our help. We will take up the refugees. We are doing this already. The European Union has because has, has been strengthened, and it was their dedication that has helped us because we were discussing useless subjects in Europe for, for years, nonsense by comparison to what's at stake now. And all this has changed within days. So we are evolving ourselves. And we've been, we've been doing this now for, since the war started. And I, and I don't think this process can be turned, turned back. I don't believe in this. Fine words and fine sentiments to end, Dr. Donner. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that, that's a fine concept, which I will just echo once again from Gunter. And um, we should all be grateful to the Ukrainians for changing us. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.